All right, so we're be, we're ready to begin. Um, as I said, I listened to a sermon last night by this man named Vance Harvner, and his name came up when I had done some work early this w- this week on day one's homework, um, and it was out of this Bible exposition commentary that I have on my Lagos Bible program. So I have all these lovely um, commentaries I can just click on and read on any passage that I might be in. And this came up, and I'm starting with this because it's kind of a side note. It hasn't got really a whole lot to do with exactly what we're looking at in today's homework, but it does have to do with our overall information that we've been looking at concerning spiritual gifting. One of the things that we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 is how um, that passage teaches us about the... um, purpose of the gifting in varieties, right? How that that gifting variety um, is there so that in the end what happens is we have need of one another, right? That there's no island in this thing we call church, this thing we call the body of Christ, that we each bring something to the plate that's essential, necessary. Uh, it, it's such a joy to know that that we really do need one another. And I think that when people actually wake up to that and become more more alert to it, it's really beneficial to them on the whole. When we study the gifts and we look to see what the various ones are and how they are manifested in our midst, I think it also helps us to be much more gracious and much more appreciative of one another. Rather than being critical when we see somebody acting in a certain way, we might pause for half a second in our little brains and kind of let the the information that we've been studying rotate around a little bit and say, you know what, I'll bet their gift is this. And that's why they're seeing this scenario in the way that they're seeing it. Now, you know, if you take, for instance, the prophet gift and the mercy gift and a scenario is presented to them in the room, do you think they're going to respond in the same way? Uh, No. (laughs) They're, They're almost polar opposites of one another and it's one of the reasons I've always said very rarely does a prophet person with the gift of prophecy prophecy teaching word of wisdom very rarely do they do they also have mercy as a strong gift it it might be somewhere down in the chain but it's not one of the top uh, gifts for them because there would be this battle within their own spirit on a constant basis between wanting to reach out and give that person a hug or to stand there and say look thus saith the Lord right? And that would be a conflict. So in the body, we need one another. We need the diversity. We need that. And so this um, man, Vance Harvner, makes a comment about this. I just want to read to you, but rather than me trying to explain it all, I'm just going to read to you what he has to say. And think about this also through the prism of what's going on in our world as well. Not just, it's, it's interesting to me how our government in the United States of America has been established and based upon basically Christian principles. Now, I know the outside world does not like to hear that. They think that's a bad thing. For us, we understand that it's a good thing. Um, The fact that our founding fathers had such knowledge, depth of knowledge, and being able to apply it to our, our constitution in the way that they did blows me away. The more I learn about these things, the more I realize the wisdom in how they set up our government and how they set up our laws and particularly how our constitution is established. So with that kind of as a backdrop, but the primary thing is the church itself. It's just good to hear this stuff. So let me just read to you what this Bible 
a commentary said. It's, it's the subject is diversity, the gifts of the spirit. It says unity without diversity would produce uniformity. Okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to say this again because I want it to kind of sink in. Diversity with, uh, unity without diversity would produce uniformity and uniformity tends to produce death. That's pretty profound, is it not? Life is a balance between unity and diversity. So there is this, this balance that goes on. As a human body weakens, its systems slow down, right? That begins to come into this thing called uniformity or singleness. If you're really, really sick, what happens? A lot of other body functions shut down. The heart, heart just pumps and you know the essentials work. Your lungs work, but a lot of the other things kind of stop working. And often that, what does that eventually lead to? Death. Okay. So life is a balance between unity and diversity. As a human body weakens, its systems slow down, and everything tends to become uniform. The ultimate, of course, is that the body itself turns to dust. This helps to explain why some churches and other Christian ministries have weakened and died. So if you make that application to what you see in the body of Christ, this uniformity it, if it becomes the excess and there's not diversity in there for the balance, uniformity will eventually lead to that ministry or that church dying. Okay. Um, there was not, if there's not sufficient diversity to keep the unity from becoming uniformities. Now, Dr. Vance Harvner has expressed it this way. First, there is a man. Then there is a movement. Then there is a machine. And then there is a monument, <laughs> right? Because there's the man, there's the movement, you know, there's that machine that gets honed, but it's honed for what? Uniformity. Everybody come on board with me and get on board with just me and my idea and my plan and my thought. And then what happens eventually? Dead. Many ministries that began as a protest against dead orthodoxy became dead themselves because in their desire to remain pure and doctrinally sound, they stifled creativity and new ideas. However, if diversity is not kept under control, it could destroy unity, and then you have anarchy. Now, that is what, if you think about that in the perspective of our government, that's kind of where I, all of a sudden it triggered in my mind. I went, wow, that's interesting. That's just like what we see going on in our government, you want that diversity, you want that balance of powers, you want the balance of ideas and concepts, but you don't want to go too far one way or the other because then it becomes anarchy if it becomes too in uniformity. Um, however, if, okay, if how, however, if diversity is kept under control, it could destroy unity and then you have anarchy. We shall discover in 1 Corinthians 13, that it's uh, maturity that balances un unity and diversity. The tension in the body between the individual mem members and the total organism can be solved by maturity. Using the human body as his illustration, Paul explains three important facts about diversity in the body of Christ. Why are there different members? So these are the three things. And then he gives you an outline. So I'm going to send this little piece to you guys. You'll have it in writing. But here's the three things. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 20, the body needs different functions if it is to live, grow, and serve. 
Then the next thing in 21 to 26 is that the members promote unity as they discover their dependence on one another. And then lastly, 27 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, diversity of members fulfills the will of God in the body. So I just thought that was very interesting. When I read that, I went, wow, that's interesting. It not only helps me to understand the importance of our diversity, that we each have different gifts and we bring different things to the plate. We need to learn to appreciate one another and, and to understand we actually have need of one another. But it also teaches us that it's vital to stay alive as a, as a church body. Th think of a way that you might see that that's a, that's a truth. Have you ever seen things become too single-minded? And in what subject matter is, has that been a truth for you? Have you ever seen a church that gets too single-minded on any one thing? What? Yep. So, I mean, honestly, if you get too many pastors or a pastor in your church and all they do every week is preach evangelism, bringing people in, bringing people in, what happens to those who are, have already been in the body for a while? They start to wither, right? Because they're not being nurtured, they're not being fed, they're not being grown up further, they're not being challenged, and they're not being used or, or appreciated either. He's trying to put a square peg into a round pole, hole when he says to you, who are gifted in serving or gifted in mercy, to say, come on, let's go do evangelism together. And he wants everyone to be an evangelist. I grew up in a church like that, in a Southern Baptist church, when there was kind of that movement first occurring, and everybody was given, uh, you know, the what was it, the Roman road, and we were supposed to do a certain thing, and we were given, tra we had training union hour on Wednesday nights, we came, we all were handed out these little tracks, and then we were supposed to go out as teams, witness to the neighborhood, and then come back and report to how many people we got saved <laughs> okay you're talking to a person well of course at that time I looking back in my life now I realized I wasn't really even saved at that point so that was a problem but <laughs> but besides that I also am not a gifted person in that way so you were trying to make me be an evangelist when I wasn't an evangelist and, and he wanted this uniformity he wanted everyone on board with this thing why because his heart was evangelism Right, so what happens to the the body of Christ when uniformity occurs? It begins to die. So a wise pastor or leader will do what? The obvious, provide diversity, provide a variety of ministries and ways to serve God, provide exhortation to those gifts as well, and provide a balance of evangelists I mean I had a, another church I grew I also had when I was growing up where the close of every sermon there was an altar call you guys remember those altar calls They're, those are a thing of the past um, but the sermon was diverse every week it wasn't always evangelistic it was a variety of things but at the end then he would bring it around and he'd say now concerning these things that we just discussed do you have that relationship with Christ and if you don't, would you like to make that decision today? And so you can do it. There just has to be a balance. And I just thought that was an insightful thought. And I loved it. And so because of that, then I went online, Googled this man's name, because I thought, I don't want to quote him before I know who this guy is, right? Um, so I went online to check him out. And he's so good. And so then they actually have online YouTube 
uh, sermons. And so you can listen to some of his sermons. If you want old school preaching, though, I mean, it's definitely old school, but I loved it. It was so fun to listen to him. He has this great southern accent, but and he's quippy. He's kind of funny, but he's very pragmatic. I really practical kind of preacher. I really enjoyed him. Okay, so that's kind of the the backdrop to, you know, I think it's it's a word of exhortation to you that we need one another. And these diversities of gifts that we're looking at, um, it's important for you to kind of try to figure out who you are in those those different gifts that we're looking at. But it's also important for you to understand all the gifts so that you understand your brothers and sisters in Christ. And also, don't we want to fit people in the right work placement in the body? Do we not want to put the teachers into teaching and the, the administrators into administrating? Don't we want the mercy gifts to be going out and giving those big hugs? You know, it, rather than putting the mercy gift in the kitchen serving. That's crazy, right? Or putting the teacher in the nursery hugging babies. When their gifting is to teach, that's a, it's crazy to put misfit people. So if we understand giftings on the whole, just in our understanding intellectually, then we can, as we are perceiving people and looking to see kind of who they are, where their tendencies are, what they seem to be really good at, then we fit people better into service. And that's that's the goal. And if you get a body of Christ that's got balance, of diversity and people are properly fitted in the right place for serving it, it's a, that church hums when, when if you've ever been in a class where the teacher's not gifted to teach it's torture right okay so enough said on that now let's go back last week um, I went th- uh, week before last actually but the last time we gathered we looked at um, the understanding of some basic doctrines concerning how you know who gets to do what gift and because there's there is this conflict that goes on you know can women be pastors right can a woman teach over a man um you know who gets to have those leadership roles right and so I took you back to learn or to kind of just very briefly obviously but we went back to say what are the doctrinal Uh, premises or foundations that your interpretations need to be filtered through. Remember, you never want to violate your known doctrines and you want to make sure your context rules for interpretation. So one of the passages we looked at in 1 Timothy had about the woman, I I, uh, do not allow that a woman should teach, right? But that she should, and that she should not have authority over a man. Now, in the context of that, is he saying a woman cannot teach a man? And the, most people, just reading that on the surface, at a blush, they would come to the conclusion, yes, a woman cannot teach a man. And that is what has happened, sadly, in our churches for years and years. But once you've taught and, and or once you have more deeply studied the, the subject of spiritual gifting, who gets them, why, how, when, where, and then you begin to understand the structure, too, of the church itself, because there's some, there's a distinction between the church structure, the administration of the church, and the functioning of spiritual gifts. That You have to split the hairs on those understandings. So all gifts are given without reference or discrimination to genders, correct? We know we have determined that. Now, one of the things we want to do is we want to just go real quickly and tell me what you understand about gifting um, on the whole. Tell me 
again, what we know about the gifts. Okay, they are given by God. And when? Given at salvation. I'm going to continue with that. By the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. All the gifts are needed. The purpose of them is for the building up of the body of, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what about who's given gifts? Everyone receives a spiritual gift, right? Exactly. No gift is, because they're all needed, none is, and none is more important than another. However, there is a statement in, in the doctrinal teachings where it talks about first of all, second of all, third of all. What is that talking about? Is that saying that one is better than another? So what is the premise on that? Why does it say first and second and third? Good girl, Janice. Because how does the church get established? Well, first you've got to have your evangelists, your apostles, your prophets, your teachers, your pastors. Those are the foundational giftings that establish a church. And then what happens once the church is established? Along comes the server, the exhorter, the gifted one with mercy, right? All those come in then as those uh, support gifts after the church is established. You can't start with the, well, I guess you could have people showing mercy, but it's not going to be within within the organization, basically, of the church itself. And how does the church benefit us as Christians? Does Scripture in any way exhort us that we really need to have organized church? Is there a verse that comes to mind? There you go. Good girl. Do not forsake the assembling of thyselves together but exhort one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, right? You're supposed to come together with hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And the purpose is because the, the reason God says, he says, don't forsake it, is basically he's saying, and if you do forsake it, that's wrong. Because why? Well, when you study spiritual gifts, you see we need one another, right? And in doing it together in an organized way, the way we have it, it is another expression of God's orderliness, that God is a God of order. So that was another thing we talked about last week when we looked at who is, uh, what are some of those doctrines through which we have to filter our understanding about the application of spiritual gifts? How do we exercise them in the church? How do we know what's correct and what's incorrect about how they're going to be used? Is the fact that there there is a need for orderliness in the way that things are done because God is a God of order. So church... Why are church offices then uh, seeming to be a conflict for us all the time? Every time we come into passages like 1 Timothy 2, where we see um, it talks about uh, pastors and overseers, how are they identified? Men. And the, 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 and the husbands of but one wife. So does that 
tell you something about the gender that's permitted for the ones who govern over a church as a leader in that capacity. That, by the way, is the same passage where he's speaking of the, the same statement that women, I do not allow that women should exercise authority over a man. It's speaking about authority in church governing, right? It's not talking about exercising of a spiritual gift in general, but it's speaking about those who are placed in governmental organization. The pastor, the elder, the overseer, the deacons, in the context of how they define those, right? So in the office, how does someone take the position of an office? Is that an automatic given to you at birth? God endows it to you? No. So it's distinct from the way you get your spiritual gift, right? How do you get put into the position? How do you get a pastor? You're, you, and who appoints them? The congregation appointed. So they're congregationally appointed. Or appointed by other leaders, right? Or other leaders that are already in place, right? Like, for instance, the 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 apostles appointed these various, like pa Paul appointed Timothy, for instance, and he exhorted him to carry on the work after he was going to be gone. And so these things were passed on to others, but they were done so congregationally and by other church leaders. What a contrast that is to the gifts which is given by God. Right? Offices are congregationally appointed. Can you see the contrast there? The, the obvious contrast? Okay. What about the next one? Given at salvation, when do you get appointed to be in the office? What does 1 Timothy 2 tell us about that? Remember the part that talks about the elders and the overseers? That they must first be what? And it gives a list of credentials. What are some of the credentials that are in there? If you can't remember, go back and flip open your Bible to uh, 1 Timothy 2. Men of, of, who are above reproach. Men of dignity, right? What else? A man of, okay, well, and there's that one technical one. Yeah. A man of, okay, so let's, okay, so here everyone receives the spiritual gifts, but it's a man of but one wife, or in other words, he's, he's singly committed to that one wife. That one gets technical if you are a widow and now you've taken on a second wife. Is that okay? And what is the answer? Well, what do we know? What is our doctrines about covenant? When does a covenant between two human beings cease? At death. <laughs> so is he free then to take on another one single wife? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's common sense if you know your doctrines, right? One, of one wife, one wife at a time, in other words. <laughs> um, so he's not, um, what is the right word? Yeah. And I might have spelled that wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so not a polygamist, not, or not one who chases women, right? Not a man who's out flaunting around. But that's a very big distinction. Contrast to everyone receives a spiritual gift, right? But on, in the office, it's, it's, a, it's only for a man, of but one wife, and that in this case she added that, but it's just for a, a specific man, and it's a a man who's been tested, or, or proven, right, proven worthy. 
of that position, right? Because he has to be, have been first been tested. Who's got that First Timothy passage open? Can you just read the, what are the qualifications in there for me? Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Very good. And I think when you go on to, down to the next one, it actually says, and not a new convert, okay? So here it's given at salvation, and these here are to, not to be new converts, okay? I'm going to erase this and put it in that order because that's kind of the way it really falls out. Now, that just, hopefully that's going to help you also take the understanding about the how the church is set up. We talked about last week then, if, if we have a picture of this, we're going to just visualize this through picture form. We have a, a nice little church drawn here with a cross at the top. The cross at the top tells us that Christ is the head, right? The head. And then we have these that come in, and these are the offices. Correct? Then where do we fit? Well, we're in the body of it with all gifts. Right? The body with all the different gifts then fall underneath that. But th these offices are reserved for these, which are a contrast to what you see here in the gifts. Offices, they are congregationally appointed, but gifts are given by God. Um, in the office, they're not to be a new convert, but the gifts are given at salvation by the Holy Spirit. The, in the office, it's a man that's been proven and tested, and he meets all these criterias. But it, the gifts, they're given to everyone. All are needed. Everyone receives the spiritual gift. The office, it's a man, but in the, in the gifting, it's, it's all. It's all people, everyone, male and female. There is no gender distinction. All needed, all off. Everyone receives a spiritual gift, no gender restrictions. Right? Okay, so this is the picture for me. Christ the head, the offices, and then the body with all gifts, um, men and women. The gifts, when we look at each of them, we have come to see that there are no distinctions. Therefore, a woman can have the spiritual gift of teacher, right? They can have the spiritual gift of prophet. They can have the spiritual gift, by the way, of pastor. But there's a distinction between the gift of pastor and the office of pastor. Does that make sense now? How many of you have had this epiphany now in this? It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, this just like really makes sense to me now. It's, it is 
Um, it's amazing to me the struggle that some people have within themselves to let go of um, basically demanding the right to be in any position that they feel like they are worthy of. But, you know, women's equal right movement kind of ruined us. We stopped understanding that God has design and order and that we each have an, a, assigned roles in how God is picturing things for us. And there's a purpose behind it. Now, what is the purpose behind a woman being in submission to a man in that doctrinal teaching? Do you remember what we talked about last week? Why is it that God has it set up that way? Okay, there's a covenant picture. There you go. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 tells us very clearly that God uses marriage as a picture that represents Christ and his church. So here we have the picture, Christ and the church, right? Christ and the church. We have the husband and the wife. We have Christ and his bride. So there's a picture, right? And you don't want to destroy the picture because when you destroy the picture, what do you also destroy? The teaching about it, the gospel message. So if you don't want to mess up God's gospel, don't mess up God's pictures. So in the picture, he's saying to us concerning the church, the way the church is designed, just as God has order and designed roles, does he not? There's the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are one, but yet they have distinct office positions, right? They each have a role that they play. Yet there's an equality in the Godhead. And in the church, we picture that. We're not exactly the same, but we are the picture of that. We each have diversity and different places to work and function in the body, but we're all one body. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches, right? We're one body, what we drank of the one same spirit, correct? We're all baptized into the one same body of Christ, and yet we are distinct. We have diversity, and we have, therefore we will have need of one another because of that diversity. I can't do the job that you all can do, right? Okay, so this picture helps us then also when we add into that the understanding about the gifts versus the office because that's one of the questions Kay asked us this week on day three is when you're looking this week at the, the gifts of helps and service and she said um, the word deacon ends up coming up, correct? Because in the word study. So her question was, is a deacon the same as the, as the, the subject of service or helps? Actually service specifically, right? Because the words for service mean is the word uh, was a diox. I got to go into service. That's on day two. Diconus. There we go. Thank you, Diconus. And Diconus is the is the Greek word that we get the word deacon from. So her question to you was, well, is uh, the gift of service, Diconus, the same as deacon? And what is your answer? No. Why is the answer no? And it's correct, but why is the answer correct? Because a deacon is what? An office, right? But there's a spiritual gifting of 
service. So they're not the same. Although you get the word from that root, that root word, it's st it still is. There's a distinction. You have to. When you're looking at these things, you have to split the hairs on it. You have to understand one's an office, one's a spiritual gift. Just because they took the, the root word and made the word deacon doesn't mean that the deacon is the only one who can have the gift of service, right? You guys are really quiet. Are you putting these things together pretty good, though? I mean, is it making sense to you why there's a distinction between the office of deacon and the spiritual gifting of service? There is a distinction between those two. Okay, so that answers that one question on day three. So we're done with that, correct? Everyone's good? Now what we can do is just, so we've got some foundation laid. We've reviewed a little bit about the, the distinction between the office of and the, the gifts of. That's an important tool in your toolbox because when, um, when you are traversing through scriptures and you come across passages where it's speaking about the office of, you need to pay attention that that's what they're talking about. It's an office. Okay, and don't confuse it with just the general application. There, would you say then also, and I also pose this question, how do you see the distinction between a person who has a spiritual gift of whatever and a person who is simply a member of the body of Christ but is exhorted to display those same qualities? So, in other words, there is the spiritual gift of giving, Right? But are we all expected to give? There's the spiritual gift of teaching, but are we all expected to teach on some to some degree or another? And how do those so how do you see the distinction? What is the distinction between the one who's gifted and just the general population called to do? There you go. The, because the person with the spiritual gifting, you're going to see a passion in them for doing that thing which they are really gifted. If they're truly gifted, it's like this supernatural enthusiasm that just comes through them, and they have a higher degree of interest in it. Are you guys, I want to know, how many in here are just passionate about sitting out at their computer and studying all night long so that they can teach something? Yeah, me. <laughs> right. Besides me, right, okay, so there's the, but yet, how many of you in this room have children or friends or neighbors that you're teaching all the time? You're sharing the insights that you're learning, and you love to share those things in the moment. If you don't have to spend hours at the computer to do it, but you've done your homework, you have done a lot of study. For you all, you guys are the cream of the crop, though, i got to tell you, because you're the ones who are really devoting yourself to learning and understanding the doctrines of your faith and the doctrines of understanding. Um, and so you have a whole lot more to share, right? I that there years ago, that book, um, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And in there it says, are you a, uh, a fountain of life or are you a babbling brook? <laughs> the babbling brook offers nothing but babble. Whatever's going on in the day, it has nothing to do with anything. It's, it's unimportant, and tomorrow, who cares, right? But the one with the fountain of, of life, the water is living water. They, when they speak in their conversations, they give out things which last for eternity, can last for eternity, if the one who hears them will receive them, right? 
And so that's the distinction, I think, between the person who, who um, understands what's coming out of their mouth. Now, we all have an app, a, a, a requirement by God to be living water to people, right? But are we all called to teach through the spiritual gift of teaching? What does 1 Corinthians 12 teach us? Yeah, not all are apostles, are they? Not all are teachers, are they? <laughs> right? So you know the scripture says that we're not all called into one um, spiritual gifting, and yet there is, a, it, there is a call and a challenge for all of us to exercise a lot of these gifts just through the natural recourse of our life. But what motivates you, like Carol said, is the one thing that can really distinguish who are you? Yes. Nope, we do not. Can I ask how you see yourself as either the I'm down here in the body. Yeah, I, my teaching gift is not an office. I'm not hired by this church. I do not get a paycheck. I, and I have no spiritual authority over the body of Christ to to rule over it, which is what the scripture says in 1 Timothy. I do not give that a woman should have authority over a man. I have no authority over anyone in this church or any church. No, but it doesn't have to necessarily just be a paid job. It has to be an appointed leader, okay, so that they have authority, okay? Let's put on that on here, with authority. Okay, now, that's a good one, good point. Now, what do you do with that one? If, if the word deaconess, is, is that a word in the scripture that says that they're appointed as deaconesses? Or does that deaconess term come from something that we translate into English and make an application with it? And what is the root word that deaconess comes from? The gift of what? Service. Okay. So if a deaconess comes from the gift of service... What do you do with churches who have appointed women to be deaconesses? <sighs> I know, it's another one of those. Okay, <laughs> what did they do? Uh, because the scripture is very clear when you go through a deacon, he is the husband of but one wife. He's a man. So deacons are to be men. If you're going to act in a capacity in a church as a deaconess, you can have that title. I don't have a problem with a woman being called that and having a, a ministry formed within a church of deaconesses. That's great. No problem with that. But who do they fall under? The deacon and the pastor and the elders, right? And their gifting is a spiritual gift that's being exercised, not an office. It's a ministry. I hold the ministry of teaching. But I don't hold the office of teaching. There is no such thing as the office of teaching, which is what we just talked about in a moment ago. Huh? Clouded in what in what way? You know why, Janice, though? Because you and I grew up in so many of these things in an, in error, and I think that 
the women's lib movement caused the men to push back and the women were limited for many years also generations not just in our recent years but all through history men tend to want to lord over women which god says don't do that right and they don't see themselves where where you go is it in timothy it goes on to say that um although christ is the head of the church the man is the head of the woman and yet man and woman are equal right errors with them right so our positions however of order are simply to personify to to picture who god is he's a god he's a, a god of designed roles father son holy spirit we as his roles and if Christ pictures the husband and the bride is us, the church, then we need to understand that we don't want to violate that picture. We need to be submissive. Taking a deaconess as a title and you're putting them over here, they have a problem because they're not a man. But a woman can have the spiritual gift of service, which is called a deaconess. Just as a woman can have the spiritual gift of pastor, but not be a pastor over a church. There are. So what is the? So what do you think about that at this point? It's not scriptural. Now, is it? Is it all condemning and it just you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater? No, uh, but it should be corrected. Somebody should have enough training. Surely I'm not the only one, or precept is not the only one, that understands this truth. Now you all understand this truth. And as a congregation, there should be objection to churches to set themselves up in the manner where they put women in offices of, of authority over men. Where they have... It doesn't mean you can't have a church secretary who tells the guys what to do. But she's not holding the office of. She's in a subordinate position underneath those men of authority. It's the men in the in the offices of pastor and elder and deacon that are supposed to make those definitive decisions on how the church is going to function and what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. They're the leaders, right? And it's an office. And with and by the way, sometimes you get a pastor whose spiritual gift is not necessarily pastor, which is really sad when that happens because it makes it tough. Maybe his real gift is evangelism and apostleship. And what he should be is out on the mission field, right? Instead, he's in a church, he's confined, and now he's trying to get everyone else on board with him and his gift because that's his passion. No, because each church body has its own government. So if she's a leader of authority that makes decisions over a man, and she has authority over other men, then she is in violation of this principle of offices. The offices are for men. Um, now, can you have women gifted as pastors and working in ministries within the church as pastors? I know, like, for instance, I know... Um, 
we have a women's ministry director in this church. Is it Kat? Is it Kat? Oh. Now, she was not, however, one in authority over men. Who did she, who did she report to? The pastors. She did not have a, she had some authority over her own ministry and she would go to them with suggestions and ideas, but she had to clear everything through those who were her, her um, overseers. That's why they're called overseers. Overseers, pastors, and deacons were the ones that were supposed to dictate how the church is functioning because they are, they are in the role of man. Now, remember what I did last week when I took you back to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden? What happened when Eve took authority over her husband and made the, that spiritual decision to eat of the apple? Nothing good. And because of that, we have a fall. And in the fall, then there was discipline. And the discipline is God said to man from now on, because you did not do your role the way you were supposed to, the way you were designed and the way I appointed, you will now do that role, but you will do it by the sweat of your brow. And you women, because you cease to be the helpmate and the, the, and the uh, support to your husband in the way, in, for you, childbearing will be a constant reminder to you that you stepped out of line in that and it was wrong. And so every time you have childbearing pains, it's to remind you to stay in line to the design order that God has for you. Isn't that amazing? It's also why we wear clothing. Because we sinned in the garden and we became basically naked before God in a, in a, in a shameful way. It's, it's our disgrace. Now we wear clothing as a constant reminder that, that we sinned. And that we need a covering. Now, who for us is our covering now besides our clothes? <laughs> Jesus. Spiritually, it's Jesus. He is our intercessor in our clothing. We put on Christ, right? So he is our clothing. He is the blood that covers us. In the Garden of Eden, God shed blood and put animal uh, skins upon them. It's the reminder that we sinned. Childbearing is the reminder that we stepped out of our designed uh, order of things that God designed for us. Man's consequence was he now works by the sweat of his brow. It does not come easy. It's just to remind us. Those are basic principles that have to constantly be pulled back into your remembrance when you're looking at these things. These are great questions, though, and these are the questions that I think the church does not discuss, and there's a lot of resistance to because so many feel that if a woman is subordinate to a man, that that makes her less than. What does God say about that? Is that true, that I'm less than because I can't hold the office of pastor? Could I possibly be a pastor? Although I don't really have that gift, but if I had that gift, could I physically do it? Do women do it all the time in our world today? Yes, they're capable. But that's not the point. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And in spiritual um, arenas of thinking on things, it, it's us submitting to God's way. It's us understanding God has a design order and a purpose, and it's all good. Right? And resisting that, all that does is show you rebellion. That's why uh, 1 Corinthians 11 talked about the women who were contentious. Right? And and first Timothy also, the women in First Timothy three, I think it was, or two, three. One of those. <laughs> right? What about that question? That's not an office 
No, it's a gift. It's not an office. There is no church office of evangelism. As a matter of fact, it falls in that passage in Peter where it says these are the found these are the foundational gifts that establish a church. The 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 uh, apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, they they and the prophets, they are the ones that establish the church so that then all the other gifts come in as the support that build the church up. Right? But they are not offices my gift of teaching is not an office it's a ministry within the church and that's why I have authority to do it yes yeah and he might be actually on a board where he is hired and in that capacity he, it would be an office but as far as the affecting of our church, I don't think he has any voice in how our church is is administered. So he's not in an office over us any longer. He is in his own capacity working as a basically an evangelist and, a, and a, an apostle, basically. And if the husband's not a believer and the wife is, Okay, that's a whole another subject matter, but what basically it's, it boils down to First um, Corinthians chapter seven. We ta- we studied that when we did our Corinthian study, and we talked about if you're married to an unbeliever, how does that work out? Well, if the husband is willing to keep you, uh, then you submit to him as your covering, as long as he's in line with God. Now, when he asks you to do something that violates God's word, and that's true in any c- case, then who do you obey? God or man? God. And in in relationship to covenants, which covenant? supersedes the other the covenant with God your salvation covenant supersedes that with your spouse so you need to find harmony if your husband is willing you know and there's a lot of women that do that their husbands are very happy they're in the church they're very happy that they're doing their things but they do need to go through their husband and get authority because God still uses your husband as your covering and as your protection uh, and he will still work and operate through. And if he loves you and he's willing to let you do the church thing, then you go do the church thing. But you still clear everything through him because you're, you are to be in submission to him. Okay? It makes it a little tougher to do, but it's possible. Okay? All right, let's move on. Whew. Heavy stuff, but that's good stuff, right? I hope that was. I hope that helped you. Distinguishing between gifting and church office is important. Understanding design order and and roles is really important. Understanding that the offices are for men, not for women. Okay. All right. Now that we've settled those really tough ones, let's move on to what we looked at this week. We looked at the these two gifts: helps and services. Uh, the ser- uh, helps and service, and then the last one was mercy. So let's start with helps. Let's begin by just defining it. Now we, oops, I think I printed the wrong chart. I don't have my notes on this one. Doggone it. Okay, you guys are going to have to help me. Helps. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight. Oh, yes, you're right. <laughs> I knew that. If I thought about it instead of just looked. It does say 12. Okay. And then um, what is our number for helps? 484. And let's do the uh, transliteration. Anti, A-N-T-I, 
lepsis, L-E-P-S-I-S. And what does it mean? To lay hold of. Relief. Okay. There were a variety of other ways of saying those same things. On behalf of, or because, or for this cause, or for the sake of, or on behalf of. Now, what does that tell you then about um, the, the, the subject of that gift of help? It's basically you assisting someone else, right? It's on behalf of, or for, or whatever. To lay hold of, to relieve, and on behalf of. Meaning someone else, right? All right. Now, when you were... Um, is this the one... Let me look and see, because there was a word yoke that came up in one of the word studies. Do you guys remember coming across that? Oh, where is it? I printed the wrong um, sheet here, apparently. Hold on, let me look over here. That's not it. That's my review. That's my strength. What's that? Here, oh, here it is. I got it. One who aids, okay, very good. I like that much better, too. One who aids. Okay, so now what does that part of it teach you? If it's one who aids, what does that tell you about the person with the gift of helps? What are they doing and not doing? Okay, very good. So that, therefore, there, there is that idea then of the yoking, right? This The subject of yoking came up in my Sunday school or my ABF class yesterday. Who, who all was there? Brenda, were you there yesterday? No? Anyway, but they were talking about the yoking and what does that mean. And one of the, one of the descriptions that um, Charlie gave to us was that a horse can pull, with, even with a yoke harness on, if he's a single puller, at a certain capacity, right? But if you yoke him together with another animal, exponentially the strength grows, right? And so the idea in that, if you consider that in, in the gifting of helps, it's one who comes alongside of to give aid. They're yoked to or with someone. Where Jesus says in our sermon yesterday, uh, take my burden upon you, my yoke is light, right? My burden is light. And the idea is that Jesus then also becomes our burden. Not only is he our savior, but he also comes alongside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as, our, as our yoke partner. And in that, there's an expectation then that we still have a work in it. We don't just sit down and say, oh, go ahead. You're my helps person. You do it, right? It's not that at all. It's there's a yoking, and if you if you can kind of visually see that in your head that you're yoked together then with the gift of helps. Who in here thinks they have the gift of helps, by the way? Oh, good, a lot of you. So if I were to, to take one of you then alongside of me and we were be yoked together, we pull together. And in doing that, exponentially, the workload is very light, right? My burden is very light because of the yoking together. So if you see the definition, it's one who aids, 
it's not someone who comes in and does it for you necessarily, although they are often doing different tasks than the one that they're yoked to, right? So if you come alongside for, with me, as you have, Kristen, you're busy taking care of sound equipment and setting up things and you know, whatever you're organizing, you and Miss Lois and others in this room, right? But I am doing other things, but we are yoked together to accomplish what? This class. Right? So the mission is to get this, this class uh, set up so that we can all come together to learn together. But the work we do is different work, but yet we're, we're visually, we are worked together. That's the, the concept behind that. So she's coming to my aid. I'm not just dumping everything in her lap. Okay? All right, so that's interesting. Just by that part of the definition, you begin to start to get a really good grip on what is the gift of helps and how is it to be viewed. And certainly, it's how is it to be viewed both by the one receiving the help and by the one who is doing the help. They both, they both must understand they're working together. Now, in that, if you take that to the next step, then what does that tell you about the person who has the gift of helps. What are kind of the confines to their work and what are the parameters of where they have a lot of freedom? What might they then need to um, rein themselves in on? Or do you see them the, a need for them to be reined in any way? Or do they just have carte blanche to just say, look around and say, I'm just going to do it? Okay, if it's on behalf of me, if they're coming to my aid, right, as my help, then what must they have into their consideration in their work? What I need, right, With the, and a good idea of what the goal is, correct? And a good idea of who it is that they're, they're working with rather than seeing themselves as an independent rogue agent. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I mean, I just think it's really important that you kind of hone out all those concepts in your mind if that's your gift, because what you understand then is you're not just a freelance agent just doing whatever you want. And, it, and, and we're going to look at it when we talk about the gifts, some of the strengths and the weaknesses in that gifting. But um, one of their, the tendencies of a person with helps is to say, oh, I see this needs to be done. They go and they do, quote, this, and then they're done. They can walk away. Well, what if that wasn't the one thing that was most important to the one that they were aiding? Yeah, oops. <laughs> exactly. We kind of talked about this last week when we talked about um, administrators who are not real good at communicating. And, <laughs> and some aren't. But if they don't communicate well, then, then what can happen is um, they have people under, because administrators are leaders by nature, that is their gifting, as, as to be a leader. And as they lead, if they don't communicate well with the people underneath them, what, they, what can happen is those people come in and they go, oh, well, um, Lois told me to do A, B, and C, but I'm going to do C, B, and A. And Lois comes in and goes, what? You did it backwards? I needed it A, B, C because, and now she tells you, but she should have told them that up front, communication. Right. So almost in all of these gifts, because the goal, um, one of the goals for us is to understand and to learn that we have need of one another, we also need to learn that we need to communicate well with one another. There should never be an assumption that the people that you're serving understand what you're thinking. 
And if you're one who is, quote, serving in that capacity as spiritual gift of server, then you need to find out what the person whom you are serving actually needs rather than just assuming and going on your own to tackle things, right? Okay, so there, there's a lot of ramifications to understanding what this gift actually is. It is one who aids another. Okay, one who aids another. They are one who lays hold of and on behalf of someone else. Okay, so that definition gives us a really good foundation. Now, we looked at many other possibilities on that word where there were prefixes and suffixes. Language is tough for me. I'm not a good linguist. But I remember in Turkey, one of the things I, I remember was if you could learn a root word, then there were prefixes and suffixes added on that actually could almost be a whole sentence in one word. One word. And some of their words in Turkey were like this long, and you'd look at them and go, oh, my gosh. I did learn, though, to break them down and see the root. And once I could see the root, then i go, oh, okay, they're talking about this. I have no idea what all those prefixes and suffixes were actually saying, but I knew what the root word was, and it would kind of give me a gist. Well, in, the, in our Greek uh, language, we kind of have that same thing going on. With this word helps, there were lots of others. So 484 was our primary one in 1 Corinthians 12.28. Uh, but then we went into many others, 482, 473, uh, 2983, seven, uh, 4878. Some of them were long. Like one of them, here, here's one. It, 482, which is really close to 484, is anti-lambanomai. Well, that, that antilipsis comes in there somewhere. Maybe it's in the anomai part. I'm not sure. But what they've done is they've changed the, the prefixes and the suffixes, and it's changed from maybe being a noun to being a verb or be even used as an adjective sometimes, right? Um, the anti, A-N-T-I part that comes in front of it talks about being over, against, instead of, or a substitution. In our case, which one do you think that really is? Is it over? Is it against? If you're a helper, is it instead of? Think on that one carefully. Or is it substitution? Same, similar to me, too. But anti, we know it's certainly not instead of, right? So it has to be that somehow a substitution, meaning they fill in the place of something that's needed. They're an addition to it, is my guess, is how they use It's got to be that in, in the use of this. Then it goes, lambano is to take, to receive, or to seize. And then the other one, 4878, was soon anti-lambanomai. That's a big one. It's, it also just simply means help. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. It was the biggest word, and it means the, the definition was help. Okay. All right, so having that in mind, when, when you go into all these different passages, there are different Greek numbers that are going to show up for you, and if that catches you off guard, go ahead and look them up, which is what I did. I'm not kidding you. I spent eight hours doing word studies on day one. I know. It was crazy. It was insanity. And I thought... Surely none of my students are doing this. Why am I doing this? But I, it, it was just important. But my, my thought was, what if somebody says, well, that's not the number that's used here, right? Then I would need to have an answer. So I, I, so I did go through and look them all up. 
Um, okay, so let's just make a list then from the um, scriptures that she gave us in Acts and Luke and Philippians and Romans, all these different passages. What did you come up with for your understanding about helps? What is How is helps defined for us in scripture? How is it seen? What does it do? Okay. Okay, so let's just ask the question then, how? How do they help? That's the first question. By working, tell me the rest of your sentence there. With another. And which verse did you get that out of? Okay, good. That's one I have too. Okay, good. Okay, well, that is that is definitely one. They share the workload. Um, and it's very interesting in that Luke 10.42, uh, does it kind of tell you how they do that? As they're sharing that workload, what must their focus be? Is, does it indicate on that? Let me find Luke, Luke 40, it says, but Martha was what? Distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, if she was being um, a helper working in the spirit, obviously they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, but but if they were, if she was doing it with the right attitude of her heart, correct? Then rather than um, having her focus on Mary and what Mary was doing, what would she be doing? She would be focused on doing what she's supposed to be. So it would be an undistracted service. Is it, it, Ideally, that is what it should have been, right? She shouldn't have been worried about what her sister was doing. She should have been happy and content in the work that God gave her to do. She should have been working, well, in this one case, is working with another, but by serving others, right? And undistracted. Un unannoyed, not not angry that she's doing what she's doing, but happy in it. Yes. True, except for the, everybody would have been gone hungry, right? Well, See, there's that little problem. But you're right. But you're right. I mean, the point to that story is. What is the greater choice? What is the better choice? However, in practicality of life, is it necessary for there to be a server? Absolutely. We kind of talked about this yesterday in my Sunday school class. Someone said, um, oh, and I even missed church last week, not this, not this Sunday, but the week before, because I had out-of-town company. You can't be two places at once. If you're serving and you're and you're entertaining company, you have to cook and clean and set up and fix meals and plan things, right? You can't be in two places at once. So the practicality is you have to be able to serve. But in that storyline, you're correct. The point was Jesus wanted her to pick the better. He saw her complaining, which meant that she wasn't in the right mindset. Her serving was not in joyfulness and undistracted. It was, I'm upset because I see my sister sitting while I'm working so hard now how, how do you think that for those of you who have gifting especially gifting of serving 
Is, is that really something that you do have to kind of keep in check on a regular basis? Don't you sometimes look around and get annoyed when you see somebody? I even get annoyed at my husband who's sitting in the living room with the remote control and I'm in the kitchen cleaning and sweating, you know, and I've just cooked a big meal and now I've got this big mess to clean. And what does he do? He goes in and sits down and watches TV. I'm like, you know, you could just pitch in once in a while. I realize you work a job, but, you know, it, could, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> so you can you can lose your right mindset is what I'm saying. So in here, what we see in that particular passage in Luke 10:40 is that you are to be serving others, undistracted, basically joyful, joyful service, right? Not angry because your sister's sitting down. <laughs> okay, what else did you learn? How do they help? What kind of things was Martha doing? What was she? What was her work accomplishing? What was Martha's? I know that there was some rebuke in this, but what was that was good about what she was doing? Yeah, she was being practical. She was meeting practical needs. A person who, with the gift of helps meets practical needs, okay? They meet practical needs. Some of these passages, you guys, when we're looking at them, we have to kind of, um, and it's, it's hard to do, and this is one of the things I, for me that, remember I, I've told you this years back, but spiritual gifts is a tough Bible study to get through because there's so many cross-references, and each cross-reference you go into can take you into a whole different arena, especially if you're one like us who want to set the proper context and say, what is it actually talking about here? That's not what you're looking for. You don't care what the point is in that passage. What you're looking for is qualities and characteristics of a helper. That's all you're looking for. What does a helper look like? What are they doing? And you're drawing it out. So you're really coming to analytical insights, not uh, specific doctrinal truth, okay? So you're looking to see how, when you see somebody exercising the, 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 this word helps, which is what we went to look for in the, in the cross-referencing and finding that word helps, we're looking to see what is a helper doing, okay? So how do they help? By working with another, maybe, in Luke 10:40. although in this case, by the another was the sister and she really wasn't helping. <laughs> so I don't know if that one's quite right. But anyway, by serving others undistracted and joyful, because that's what the rebuke was. Jesus is saying, you know, what, you know, you shouldn't be um, basically criticizing your sister. She's chosen the better thing, actually, in, in that storyline. But so the essence is he's trying to say to her, if you're going to be a server, do it joyfully, right? Um, meet practical needs. That's what she was literally doing. She was serving them food and, and making sure that they had everything that they needed. Um, what about in Acts 20 or in 1 Peter 4? Were there other things? Okay, so who do they serve? Who do they uh, help, not serve? Who do they help? The weak and the needy. And what verse was that one? Okay, Acts 20, 
35. Very good. So who do they help? The weak, the needy, anybody that's in need. Not just needy as in poor and penniless, but needy as in like me. I might need your help to set up, right? So I would be in need, okay? But also the weak. Weak meaning they can't do it themselves. One person can't do it all, right? The weak. Acts 20, 35. How about Philippians 4? Who was being served there? Who was serving? Who was being served? Yeah, so they were attempting to feed the believers, basically. So who were they, what were they literally laboring for as they were doing what they were doing to help them? What was their goal? Philippians 4, okay, let me just read it. It'll be easier maybe, huh? Um, Philippians 4, I'm looking for it. Somebody have it, Philippians 4, 3? Read that for me. Okay, so he's wanting the, them to help someone who had done what? What were these women doing? Sharing his struggles in the in the gospel. So those who labor labor hard for the gospel are the ones that you want to help. That would be what a helper would, one of the goals would be for them to look around and see who else is working hard. I don't want you to go and help the person who's sitting on their rear end doing nothing. I want you to go and help the person who's working hard in the labor for the gospel, for the kingdom work, right? Find people that you can help who are also helping, right? Don't come along as a helper. You're, you are not to be an enabler for someone else to do nothing. You are to help those who are already working hard. That is one of your primary goals, is to help those who are laboring. Help those who labor hard for the gospel. Now, that doesn't just mean teachers either. It can be any capacity. It might be an administrator. Maybe she's doing administrative work and she needs somebody to set up food. So you're going to come alongside and help her by doing the food so that she can continue to administrate all the other things, right? Okay, so that's in Philippians 4.3. It, it, it was a stretch, but it went on to talk about those whose names are in the book of life. So really your, your goal could be for anyone who's, it, particularly those who are believers, basically. You want to help your fellow believers. You want to help other people too, but your your first goal is, according to Acts 20 and Philippians 4, is going to be to help the household of faith. Now, why would that be? I mean, it, that could sound, oh gosh, that's really selfish. You mean you're only going to help people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ? Why should that be your priority first? Although others can be helped as well, but why should your brothers and sisters come first? Yes, because they're also helping others. And 
There you go. The purpose of the gift is for the building up of the body of Christ and for works of service. If you are helping others who are outside of the church, who don't belong to the church, and you're doing all these nice things for them all the time, right, you might be enabling them to stay outside of the church. So your first priority is to help those in the church. Is that a little bit of a shift on your concept about the gift at this point? Helps is not just helping anybody you feel like helping or helping anybody who seems to need help. <laughs> it's, it, there's a deliberate focus of who you're going to give your helps to. Because you as an individual also only have a limited amount of time and energy in your own personal realm, right? So you have to use it wisely. And if your goal is to build up the kingdom of God, if your goal is to glorify God, then you need to be focused on those kinds of things first. The other things can come in there too as well on, on occasion and as you have time. But your first priority has to be to the household of faith. Okay? And it can be. And especially if your gift is evangelism, Right. If your gift, spiritual gift, is evangelism, and you want to come, and you also maybe you also have a helps gift, maybe that's a blend. Then you want to go in, and as you're helping them do, what what should you be doing? You should also be evangelizing them. It, you have to somehow give them the gospel message as you're helping them. If you're just helping an unbeliever without mentioning Jesus Christ or mentioning that God is the one who sent you to help them or to be a blessing to them, then what do they, what do they do with that? How are they processing your helping them? Yay, somebody's giving me help. <laughs> but they do they glorify God in it? Does it bring them to Christ in any way if you aren't giving them that information? It's one of the reasons why ministries often, for instance, when we have, um, what is this one we're doing right now? Something purse, Samaritan's purse, right? When they send out these care packages to these children, what goes inside those care, care packages also? The gospel tracts, right. And, and it comes through the hands of people who they recognize as missionaries or preachers or people who, who represent the church of God right? Because they don't want them to just say, oh, here's a present and walk away. They want to see the connection. This is why I get so angry about the beggars on the street who beg for churches because what has happening, people might be giving them free stuff, but what, what's also coming with that is the identity that that person is, is conveying the message. God is unable to provide for his own church. So they're having to go to the world to get help. Right, and that can, that gives the wrong message. the uh, The opposite of that is a person with the gift of helps. If they're helping, but they're conveying to people, "I'm helping because I love the Lord." It's, if you're if you're reaching out to the unsaved, but that should never be your first priority unless evangelism happens to be your senior gift. Then that dominates. The helps is secondary, but you'll always be giving the gospel anyway if evangelism is your primary, because that you can't help yourself. <laughs> if you're an evangelist, you can't help yourself. That's true. So that's true. That's right. So it, you know, it can get a little bit complicated. We, what we want to do is to basically, um, we want to widow this down to just some real concise concepts of what we understand about the gift. Now, the application of it in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about there's a variety of 
gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There's a variety of effects, but the same God, right, who works all things in all ways. So we know that the diversity that we all have, we're each a snowflake. We each have our own. No one uh, Christian is the same. We have a variety of also natural attributes that God has given to us as well that come into the picture, education that comes in. So we play all this out in various ways. But what we are trying to do in this class is to just kind of uh, crystallize our concept of what is the gift of helps and how should it be exercised. If you've got that gift, you need to be aware of its purpose and um, how it should, what it should convey to the world around you as you're exercising it, right? So if, if I'm a teacher and all I do is stand up here and talk about books and philosophies, am I meeting the mark? What is a teacher supposed to be doing? Teaching the word. We're supposed to be getting into the word of God, and I'm to be conveying doctrines of truth, not my opinion or man's ideas or a book that I read that was really good, right? Uh, a movie I watched. <laughs> so what? What does God say? That's what you, you need to hear out of me. So a person with helps needs to do this. They need to be serving others, undistracted, joyful service. They need to meet practical needs. They need to understand that their focus is to be the weak and the needy, but it is also to help those who labor hard for the gospel to help first and foremost their fellow believers. Okay, so we, I mean, because helping is concept that not one of us in this room is having a hard time with, right? We all understand what it means to help. And it can come out and be exercised in lots of different ways, right? But, yes. That almost sounds like an exhorter to me more than a helps, but okay. But I thought that kind of goes over to a little bit of teaching, but not. Yeah, it also, yeah, it does both, yeah. I think that's why God says to us that all of us, even though we have a, we have a, what you have, Kay years ago has talked about locative of sphere, and I've talked to you guys about that before. You need to find out what your primary gifting is, and you need to hone it. You don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. You want to be a master of something, first and foremost, and then you can be a jack of all the other trades as well. But master something. And the thing that you master, once you identify what is your primary goal, the thing that motivates you the most, you need to get in there and do that one thing well, right? And in order to really do that, you really do have to understand that gift. So that's what this class is supposed to help you do, is to kind of crystallize what the gifts really are supposed to be about. So the gift of helps is not just to willy-nilly help. It's to understand that you're a yoke partner with someone. That means you're helping someone. Who should you be the one yoked to to help? In particular, it should be your fellow believers, and, and, and even more importantly than just fellow believers, those who are also working hard and laboring for the, for the, for the gospel or for the kingdom in some fashion. First and foremost, you want to come alongside those in your church and in your world who are working toward godly um, goals, right? 
not just go next door and help babysit your neighbor's kids because that's their need. That's, that's a good thing to do if you're a van. Now, if you're an evangelist, that is your primary goal. So go over there and do that. Assist by babysitting, and then you can have an opportunity to give the gospel. But you understand that your primary reason for being there is evangelism. And you've got that crystallized in your mind, and you go there with that goal in mind, and you pre-plan it. I have a, I, my friend Celeste, her, one of her, I think it's her primary gift is evangelism. And she called me the other day, and we had this long discussion about what's going on in another group that she's attending. It's a, like a fellowship group, but there's really very little um, Bible study or real truth that's going on. It's more just social, right? But they get off on conversations, and they're so off base, and she gets so annoyed. She says, Katie, I'm becoming just like you. I'm getting so annoyed when they take things out of context or when they're, or they're totally wrong on something. They just don't totally understand it. So she and I, because she's an evangelist, I said, I said okay, so Celeste, what you need to do is pre-plan you know this is the subject matter right now. You need to go in, restudy, hone in a little bit, hone your understanding on that subject matter, and pre-think through. If they say this, this would be my answer. If they say this, this would be my answer. That's what an evangelist does. An evangelist has to be a master of the Word of God. That's why I think every spiritual gift needs a Bible study. Because every one of you, in the gifting as you're exercising it, you need to, number one, be able to filter it, your exercise of your gift through correct application. The only way you're going to know that is to actually know the Word of God. What God says is right. What God says is wrong. You have to kind of know these principles, right, of splitting hairs on things so that you don't make an application incorrectly. And the other thing is it's really important is who's getting the glory in the end, right? So you have to have your knowledge base built so that when you go out in the world to serve, you're going to serve correctly. If you're going to be a gift of mercy, you're going to actually be a mercy giver, not an enabler. You're not going to step in the, in the path of God who's trying to do things in their life. One of the references I looked at was... Um, the prodigal son. Well, what if somebody with the gift of mercy came in there and just started giving him stuff because, or the person of help says, oh, he needs this. How, how soon would he have gone back to his father in repentance? Not quite as soon, right? That's why often if you have a wayward child, which I've, I have had, and he's better now, but he was really wayward for a while, you have to let him fall on their face. Until they see they have a need, they won't, let you, they won't let you guide them into the right path. And all you're doing by handing them free stuff is letting them stay in the mess they're in. And do you think that's fear that they won't be guided to life after you think Well, it could be a little both, and it also can just plain be rebellion. If they're still resisting God, then... You know, they don't have the mind of Christ yet, and they see things through the world's perspective. And there's still that rebellion. For my son, it was rebellion. He just was rebellious against any authority in his life. So if I said go up, he would go down. If I said go right, he would go left. And if I said, well, God says, he goes, ah, but what does God know? Right? But one day, I'm praying, he'll have the mind of Christ, and he'll come around. I had a very interesting conversation with him this weekend. I... I I would love to share that sometime, but anyway, so it's, we'll see. Anyway, people have to understand that when you are doing your gifting, 
whatever your gifting is, that your doing of it is because you love the Lord and because you want them to see their need for God if they don't have it. And if they already love the Lord, then for you to come alongside as their yoke partner to help lighten their load. Right? Our pastors need people to come alongside. Our pastors also need to put people correctly in the right places. If they're, if they're ill-equipped and they're put in the wrong positions in ministries, it, it makes it really tough. They don't go well. Right? Okay, so why? Here's the why part to this. Helps is by working with another, serving others undistracted, meeting practical needs. Who do they help? The weak, the needy. They help those who labor hard for the gospel. They, their, their focus should be to help their fellow believers. Now the question is why? Why are they doing what they're doing according to what you looked at? You looked in Acts 20, Philippians 4, 1 Peter 4. Why? I like 1 Peter 4.11 a lot. What does that one say? Say it again. There you go. You got to the right part. <laughs> so that God may be glorified. <laughs> Why? So that God may be glorified. Now think about it for half a second. If you're a person with the gift of serving, the last time you did service for someone, besides me this morning, many of you helped me, did they understand that what you were doing was so that God would be glorified? Did they in any capacity understand that you were doing it because you love the Lord? And if not, there needs to be a way you can maneuver just slightly in the way that you do it so that they understand you're doing You know, even when I sign a card for somebody, I send a get well card to somebody, maybe it's not even a believer, it's you know, somebody in a different group, a Mahjong group or a quilt group or whatever, I, I try to stick a scripture verse in there, even if they don't even know what that verse means and maybe they'll never look it up. But what does my putting a little verse on there do? Say it again. Yeah, it points them to God. And what does it do about their understanding about my intent? Yes. I have uh, several ladies that, you know, they, they make pose. They've got all these health issues at our age. Everybody's got health issues, right? You know, one of my favorite emojis is the praying hands. I, I almost always, even if I don't make a comment, I give them a praying hand. So let them know, I'm praying for you. I'm, you know, I'm lifting you up, even if it's only in that very moment, in that very second at the time I read it, that my heart is lifting you to the Lord. And, you know, God knows your need. And I'm, and I'm perceiving everything you're saying through a heart of compassion that says, I want you to understand that God knows. And you can turn to God to find your, your answers and your hope. So, so that God may be glorified. Okay, we're going to have to expedite this a little bit so we can get through the rest of this. But... Uh, so that in all things, um, to be a blessing to them in Acts 20, to give a hand to those who also work hard. Okay, so that's the why. 
Um, now let's talk about service. What is the word study on that one? I have to go back in here to see if I can find it. Okay. 1238 and 48. Okay, thank you. 48. D I A Okay, Dioconia. Okay. And actually when you when you saw that, that one actually was hold on, let me find my other chart. Here it is. It's also twelve forty seven and twelve forty nine. What I found interesting there was only one other one that she gave us in all the homework she gave us which was the one in Hebrews where it talked about the angels, and that was number 3010. It was totally different. Did you catch that too? Yeah, and I thought that's interesting, and I wondered why she even gave us that one because in a way she stepped away from the spiritual gifting to man and talked about angels who had a gift of... To me, it mixed apples with oranges. I think that that one verse probably should not even been in there because it was a little bit confusing. All the others for the uh, the spiritual gift of service, it's 1248, 1247, and 1249. So they were all together, and they all had that same root root word or similarity of of diconia. Okay, and what does diconia mean? <coughs> service. <laughs> Waiting tables, um, ministry. And by the way, that waiting tables ministry, because wh where that one comes out of is that scripture verse where he says he had too, Paul, the other apostles had too much work, and so they were distributing it by uh, selecting these men who were going to be deacons, basically. But they were going to come alongside, and they were going to therefore wait on tables. That's where that extra definition comes in. Okay, and in which case then this act of service is not just the act of doing something giving service but it's actually in that case it was it was actually a, an office that was given in that moment okay service waiting tables what else okay execute commands of others all right I'm just going to put it, besides, it says servant, it said minister, so there's that word minister, if you want to be a minister, and the word deacon. That's where the confusion came for some people. Is a deacon the same as the gift of service? And the answer is... No, because the office of deacon is an office. However, the root word comes from this deacon. That's where the confusion, I think, has come in through our understanding of it. So the root word of diconia gives you the word deacon, right? But when we look at this as a spiritual gift, we're not talking about deacons in the office. of. We're talking about people who have a gift to serve, to minister, to wait tables, right? Um, to, mine also says relief and support. Now the question is, who do they give relief to and who do they support, right? So who, who is it that ministers according to what we looked at in Matthew 20? 
What are they willing to do and what are some of the things that they are doing? I think this was in day two homework, guys. Okay, who is ministered to? Let me change the question. Who is ministered to? This is interesting, though, because you have to look at this. Again, we're not looking at the, don't look at the flow of thought in the whole picture. What you're looking for is to see the exercise of the gift of ministering. Who are they ministering to? Well, in this, this timeline here in uh, Acts 6, or in Philippians 4, who's being ministered to? Who are the subjects? Who are the people in these subject lines? And Paul's struggles. So who is, who is ministered to? Paul is. Paul is, and who is Paul? Paul, who is an is an apostle, right? And, uh, he gives out the gospel in his work. So who are they? Who are the people with this particular gift in this context? Here, there's it's Paul. Paul is who's being talked about. Who? What about in uh, Acts six one to six? We're just trying to. To see if there's a distinguishing between helps and get and service. The apostles. In this case, who's being ministered to? The apostles. And so we're just picking up on the clues here that who's being ministered to in in this not in helps, but in service. The one with the gift of service comes alongside of a person like a Paul and serves them. The one with the gift of service comes along the apostles in their work and helps them, right? That's what's being demonstrated there. Um, there was another one where uh, it might have been in Acts also before the apostles were mentioned in, in general. Just It talks about the all the different disciples, the 12 disciples, right? The 12 disciples. They were served, correct? Okay, now why? Or what was, let's do this one. What was ministered to Paul? In first, in 2 Timothy 1.16, Philippians uh, 2. What was ministered and, and what was its effect? Okay, so Paul's need. What was Paul's need in that passage? What was going on with Paul at that time? Do you know? See, this is the problem with having just one verse on a piece of paper. <laughs> you need the whole thing. Yes, he was. Good girl. So he's in prison. Why was Paul in prison? For the gospel. So the person with the gift of service comes alongside of someone like a Paul who is now in need because he's been doing the work of the gospel and now there's a problem for him. And so the person with the gift of service comes along the side of the, the one who's serving, in this case, as a evangelist, let's say. Okay. And because he's in prison for his work of the gospel, he is now serving him in that capacity. Okay. 
whatever. And then in Philippians 2, it's basically comes in to help Paul and he gives him help for whatever the needs would be for him while in prison. And in that um, Acts account, remember uh, who was, was it Festus or Felix or one of those Roman um, proconsuls or whatever, they said, don't hinder those who want to serve him. Let them come in and meet his needs, basically. He allowed that. And in that use of the word service there, what you try not to do is get tied up in the storyline. What you're looking to see is how is the act of service being exercised there? Well, he's going in to a man who's in prison and he's meeting his needs. In that day, if, if somebody did not come in and bring Paul, his cloak, his parchments, his books, did he get them? If someone didn't come in and bring them a meal, did they get fed? Probably not or very little, right? So if so, in this case, what you're seeing, this, this, the kind of the tweaking between the gift of helps and the gift of service, the gift of service seems to come along someone else who is in service themselves. They're a minister like a pastor, like an evangelist, like an apostle, like a teacher, like a, you know, somebody else who's working and they're in distress or in hardship or just needing help. And they come alongside of them. I always think about people, if you ever travel with any kind of ministries, you see there's always a ministry leader and there's always someone right by their side. And every time they say, where did I put such and such? That person's out the door to help them. They come back and they give it to him. Now, stop to think about that scenario. Okay, I'm, I'm going to use Kay Arthur as an example since she's our, our girl. So Kay Arthur's on a, on a trip with, uh, let's, we're going to Israel. We're all in a bus. Kay's up there preaching and teaching to the group, right? All of a sudden, Kay needs water. The person with the gift of service comes along, Kay, and she says, what, what do you need? Oh, I could sure use some water. Oh, no problem. Gone, right? Get the water, come back, give them the water. Now, what has happened is they are focused on Kay because who is she? She's a, in a position where she is serving God it's in, an, in a role where she needs focus and she needs a helper, someone to be yoked with, right? But do you think that person with the gift of service who's helping Kay is worried about whether you all have water? No. But someone out there with the gift of helps would go, you know, I think Katie might need some water. And they might just go get me water and help me. Or they might say, you know, I, I see Susan's out of water. Let me give Susan some water. See, the, are you seeing the slight distinction between helps and service? Helps is, is kind of the general helper. The service is the one who attaches themselves to someone in service to help them. That's the only distinction I can tell you. Now, here, here, but if you don't want to split these two, which is what one of the questions was we were trying to resolve this week, is how do you see them different or how do you see them the same? They're kind of doing the same types of things. So you could group them all together and be fine. It's just that then that passage back in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, where there's diversities of ministries and diversities effects of that gift, would be what you would use to explain how these two seem to merge together. But I do see that there are people who are gifted with helps, but they don't care about helping the whole group. They seem to just kind of affix themselves to a pastor. How can I help you, pastor? 
And they show up every Sunday morning. They're right there, Johnny on the spot, and they're running errands for that pastor and pretty much exclusively for him and his immediate group. And that's all they care about. They don't care if the, the pews are set up, if the AC is okay, if the whatever. That, that kind of helps is the one with the gift of helps. But the gift of service wants to serve an individual generally or, or a specific ministry. Okay? Any questions? I mean, we could go more on this, but we're running out of time. And, but I don't think it's, was it a complicated, the basic concept of serving and helping we get, correct? So it doesn't really require that we spend a whole lot more on that. But I did want to kind of show you how they can be distinguished from one another. Now, we got to get to the gift of mercy real quickly. Mercy, who is the mercy girl or guy? It's number 1653, E-L-E-E-O, and what does it mean? Yes, to have pity. What else? To show mercy. To have compassion. Okay, so pity, compassion, mercy, all those words kind of come in together on this. Um, all right, tell me by definition on the words that on this scriptures topical, this is day four and five, all your scripture verses. Let's just kind of go through and, and define um, what mercy is. I thought it was interesting. She did start us out with Psalms 145. Now, in Psalms 145, it's not talking about you and I having that gift, but it is showing us what the gift is, looks like from God our Father, who is the, the ultimate of examples in it, right? And he sa it says in there that the Lord is good to who? He's good to, yeah, or to all, correct? He's good to all. And his mercies are what? over all his works. Okay, so the person with the gift of mercies then is one who kind of has no one focus. It's all. And they're just kind of the person who steps back and they're always just kind of scanning the room, looking. Have you ever have you ever entered into a room where you have been so down in your heart or if you're the gift who has the gift of mercy in here? No mercy gifts? Oh, I'm in trouble. That's why you guys are such a hard audience. Jeff Loomis, but he's not here, yeah. Right, but you know, the person with the gift of mercy, and I, I, I can see, I had, a, a, well, she also has discernment. So the gift of discerning and the gift of mercy. And I remember as a young girl, it's the first time I saw it and recognized it. Uh, I was in my early 20s, and I showed up at a baseball practice thing at, in, we were living in Interlake and I had just had a big argument with my husband does that surprise anyone and so I come to the ball field and I am so sad I am just but I'm just you know but as soon as I approached her she looked took one look at me and she knew immediately and she came over and gave me a hug and she said I hope you're okay 
I'm like, how'd you even know, right? But they can sense it. And there's something about their ability to read countenance that is really amazing. It is so supernatural, and there's really no way for a person who doesn't have it to totally comprehend it because it is something that is divinely inspired by God. But they can sense it. And they also are the person who who it, maybe they've, they've heard by word of mouth of something that's going on. And so when they enter a room, they scan the room looking for that person. That's their first impulse is to find the person who needs the hug, you know? And if you're happy, go lucky, getting along fine kind of a person, you know, hi, how are you doing? And they're moving on. Why? Not because they don't care about you, but because they what? They, they, well, they have the gift of mercy, so they don't care if you're happy and you're good. They don't see a need. Right. So defined by scripture, we see, I'm going to put on here, good to all. In other words, they have a big perspective. To, they, they scan the room. Right? Looking for the need. We we often hear that word, the, squ the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? That's kind of the way the person with that gift operates. They're looking for the squeaky wheel They're, because they want to grease it, <laughs> okay? Um, Matthew 9, Mark 9, Hebrews 2, Colossians 3, Luke 10 again. So what did you find out about the mercy gift by looking at those? We got to hurry along, you guys. We're getting late. You should have made a list, right? Please tell me you made your list. <laughs> okay, they look for distressed. Mine said downcast. And, and when they do that, that's in Matthew 9. I put 35 and 36. I'm not sure which of the verses she gave us to look at. But when they do that, now when I looked back at 35, I looked at Matthew in a little broader perspective because that one verse just wasn't sufficient. What it showed before in, in I think this is the one in Matthew 9, was Jesus going from town to town and he was, he was giving out the gospel and he was healing the sick, right? And then it talked about that. He was why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he could and he, he considered them as downcast people. Their hearts were downcast. Why? Because they had they had these needs, right? So in that, what you can pull out of that is to say that the person with the gift of mercy not only sees them in distress, he doesn't just look for them and see them, but then his he has a response. He responds, and what he should be responding with is exactly what Jesus shows us. Number one, the gospel, and number two, the practical need, the practical need or help, right? Whatever that is. In his case, he was healing people. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that gift? I'd love it if, if I had that gift. <laughs> I'd be healing me. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't work. And that, I didn't. Okay, Hebrews 2. That one is Jesus speaking about himself as being our great high priest, right? If I remember right. 
Is that correct? Okay. And in that, he says he's able to come to our aid because why? Because he's merciful and because he also has what? Suffered those infirmities. So basically what it's saying is the person with the gift of mercy is one who can identify with your infirmities. They literally feel your pain with you. They sense your pain and they feel it with you. So they have this, this compassion because they identify. They d identify with suffering or sufferers, right? And, and they are compelled to respond. Now, one of the things that was a common denominator in every one of these references, and we could make a bigger list on this, um, they see the physical distresses. They also see spiritual sorrows. Don't forget that part. Because it's not just physical things. They see spiritual sorrows or need, right? Like they have, you have need of God or you have need of, spiritually being lifted up because you're downcast. Um, that's in Hebrews uh, 2 also. But one of the common denominators in all of this, it's not just that they look and, and it's not just that they see and it's not just that they identify, but then what is what is the next step to that? Once they a person with this gift, what is it that they do? They do something, right? They respond. They respond. They act. They don't just say, oh, I feel so sorry for that person, and then that's the end of that. There's an actual action response that goes with it, and that's one of the things that it isn't super clear when you're first looking at these passages, but if you go back and relook at them, if you wanted to, um, you could go back and see that what they're doing is they're responding. Those with the gift of mercy are spiritually motivated by and drawn to meet emotional, physical, spiritual, and comforting needs. Basically, they are God's hug for hurting hearts. That's really what they are. And that hug is a physical move. I can't just say, I'm so sorry that your brother passed away or that you're that you're having to have heart surgery this week or what they uh, they literally physically move forward and give you a hug and say I'm so sorry can I do anything to help they want to engage in that way so there's an action with it okay so that's the gift of mercy so those are some 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 of the ways that you see it and I wish we had time to go through these man we just need more time it's just not fair <laughs> we didn't get we did not get to this I have three pages of these um these spiritual gifts and how they're, um, how you see the helps, their strengths and their weaknesses on each of them. Um, I'm missing one of my pages here. Here it is. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the give you a rundown real quick. Um, helps. An ability to see practical needs others may not notice and a desire to meet them. A special joy in serving when it frees others up to do their part in serving God. Um, a God-given stamina to endure even at personal cost when serving others. Sometimes they even work themselves down to illness if they're not careful. An ability for attention to details that others don't notice. It's a supernatural thing. It's a knack at giving service that is necessary and satisfactory. In other words, they don't just do things to do things. They see you need something and they meet it, right? A strong desire to be with others, thus 
providing more service opportunities. People with the gifts of help are usually very social people. Um, and enjoyment of short-range range projects. They are not a person that wants a long-range goal thing. They go in and say, oh, let me move this for you, and they're done, right? Th that's kind of their thing. A tendency to feel inadequate and unqualified for other responsibilities or special leadership would be a weakness, but it's, but it's also a natural thing for them because somehow they feel like, well, I'm just a helper. And they get kind of down about that, and that they need to work on that one. Um, another weakness is sometimes um, they can accept too many jobs at one time. You know, they start to help me get a table set up because my class is starting in 10 minutes, and then they see you coming through the door with your walker and you need help. They drop what they're doing to go do that. Well, then my classes start and the table's still not set up. See, it's a problem. <laughs> a tendency to get sidetracked. Wearing themselves out physically. Uh, going around proper authorities. Now, this is of an important one I do want to hit on. Proper channels of people and committees may look like unnecessary red tape to servers. They are good re there are good reasons and for these processes in the church, and they need to be respected for the sake of those who follow them and for those who keep track of all such important details. This is something I learned when I was working at the chapel in the military as a chapel wife. If you didn't keep records, if you didn't keep track of things, if you didn't go through the right channels, then the next year when they were going to do that same program, it does, they can't get it done with the same budget or with the same supplies. Why? Because I stepped in and used my money, and I brought in all the stuff from my house and made all these provisions. Now, the next year, someone else is going to do my job. I'm PCS'd out. I moved on militarily. They don't have those supplies. They don't have that much money. They didn't know they needed it because I didn't report it. Do you see what I'm saying? about? So helps keep in, keep in touch with the following those red tape things. I know. so important. <laughs> it did. A lot. <laughs> Because I really don't have helps anyway, and I'm very impatient. I just want, yeah, yeah. Actually, but I got rebuked on it, and that was, it was that's how I learned because I didn't actually understand the connection between what I was doing was harmful, not helpful. I thought it was being helpful, right? Okay. Exclude. I was very young too. <laughs> but uh, excluding others from helping on a job is something they can do because they just want to get it done and they don't want to explain, right? Um, also, here's an important one: failure to pray before taking action. It might result in interference with God's work on that person. So be careful you don't step in too soon. Okay, mercy, an ability to sense genuine uh, love, pain, hurt. They feel those emotions, right? Um, they have a need for deep relationships in which there is mutual commitment. Those are the kinds, you'll see that with a person with a gift of mercy. They connect really tightly with people. Um, a tendency to react harshly when... Um, Intimate friends are rejected. Again, it goes back to they are really faithful and they're really emotionally c concerned about people. Um, a greater concern over mental joy or distress than physical concerns. I think, in other words, they just want you to be happy. And so sometimes they just want to put a Band-Aid on the wrong thing instead of actually going to the source of the problem and fixing it. Okay? Uh, a tendency to attract people who are having mental and emotional distress. <sighs> they find me everywhere I go, even though I don't have this gift at all. But I, I, I'm laughing because I'm going, yeah, those people just are attracted to them, right? Uh, a need to measure acceptance by physical closeness and quality time together. I'm um, not quite sure what that one means. 
so, now remember, these are just generalities and concepts to think on, okay? They're not hard, fast rules. Um, tendency to avoid decisions and firmness until they eliminate greater hurts. Um, that can be a strength. Sometimes it needs to be done in reverse, so they have to be real prayerful about which needs to come first, what's the horse and what's the cart. You know, they have to dis discern that. A tendency to be attracted to those with the spiritual gift of prophecy. But that's interesting because the prophet is much more pragmatic and much more direct, and the prophet sees the systemic problem. The mercy gift needs to see the systemic, but they're up here on the emotions. So if they're smart, they'll yoke themselves with the prophet because then the prophet can say, well, here, I see they got all this mess going on, but this is why. And if the mercy person can see that, then they can better serve. So that's a good little tidbit. Um, mercy, uh, their weakness is failing to be firm and decisive when necessary because they're so sweet. Uh, taking up uh, offenses for those who have been hurt. In other words, they get offended for others. Well, you just don't, you know, you're just being mean, right? They get offended for others. Um, promoting improper affections uh, from those of the opposite sex. This can be a problem. And this is why churches often, especially if you're in the office of, they have rules in place. A person of the opposite sex tends to be drawn to those with the gift of mercy because of their ability to be sensitive, understanding, responsive listeners. This must be considered in any counseling which is done, and safeguards must be established in order to avoid improper emotional attachments. You tell me that's not true, right? Your, pa your husband has, look, you have to put boundaries. There has to be, the door is open and, or if another person is present, if I'm counseling a woman, if I'm a man, or if I'm a woman, actually in most ministries, they will say we, we pair up women with women and men with men. That's what they try to do for counseling purposes. Um, basing decisions on emotions. Well, that's a, that's an obvious given. Cutting off fellowship with those who are insensitive to others that, you know, because they aren't perceiving that person's gifting and strength and they're, they're seeing it as a negative rather than what it is. All right. Oh, this one. Reacting to God's purposes in allowing people to suffer. Unlike exhorters who look at suffering as a means of growing spiritually, those with a gift of mercy tend to react to the idea that God would even allow a person to suffer for any good purpose. Their main concern usually is to remove the cause of the suffering as soon as possible. So I have to be careful with that one. I thought that was funny. All right. Well, I didn't get to do that as well as I would have liked to because of time, but 